I've been going to the gym lately, been trying to stay fit, trying to keep off the weight that I lost. I'm in and out of the gym when I go, 30 minutes on the treadmill, maybe 15, 20 minutes lifting some light weights. Going to the gym for me is all business. I get in, I get it over with, and I get home. But there's some other guys there, some young guys. I've seen them. I watch them. They go to the gym for different reasons. To look cool or to be buff or maybe meet a girl. I already got my girl. So what I do isn't so pretty. I get my heart beat up and my face red and my hair wet and my shirt soaked and then I go home. But these other guys... They stay at the gym for like two hours without getting a single hair out of place. I don't know how they do it. Their shirt remains dry. They go to the gym, but I'm telling you, I'm not sure how hard they're working out. And there's a difference. Likewise, there's a difference between going to church and getting in some serious spiritual shape. You know, some folks come to church for the same reasons they go to the gym. It's cool to be somewhat spiritual and to sort of have a buff-looking faith. And maybe they're a guy looking for a Christian girl or a girl looking for a Christian guy. Maybe that's why you come to church. But how serious are you about following Jesus? Once there was a teenager who wanted to buy a barbell and a set of weights. Some of his buddies were working out, and he thought, oh, it would be cool to have a few muscles. His father, though, oh, he had some doubts. He wasn't really opposed to the purchase, but he had some doubts about his son's determination and his commitment to the rigors of weightlifting. The boy wanted the results, but in his father's mind, he wondered whether he would really pay the price. Well, despite the father's skepticism, the dad decided to go ahead and help his son with the purchase. As they were shopping, the father kept quizzing his son. He said, are you sure you're going to stick with it? Now, son, you know weightlifting is hard work. Are you certain this is really what you want to do? Well, the boy was adamant. He said, yes, sir. This is what I've got in mind. Dad, I'm going to work out every day, I promise. Well, finally, they picked out a set of weights. They went to the checkout. They paid for them. And as the father walked off a few steps in front of his son, all of a sudden he heard him shout, you mean I have to carry them to the car? Here's a boy excited about lifting weights and bulging muscles. But you see, there's a difference between good intentions and real commitment. The young man needed to ask himself the question, was he really serious about lifting weights? And this is similar to the question that Peter asks us in this morning's text. Are we serious about being a follower of Jesus? You see, as in weightlifting, so in the Christian life, there's a difference between good intentions and follow-through. We see God's blessings and we get so excited. We covet bulging spiritual muscles. But are we really willing to seriously work out our faith? This is how Peter begins, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. In other words, it's time to stop playing games and get serious. 
Now, in the world of Peter's day, men wore long robes that extended down to their ankles. And they wore a leather belt around their waist. Of course, the robe was cumbersome and restrictive. It limited the person's range of motion. Until it came time for some strenuous labor. When they went to run or lift or jump or climb, a man would roll up his robe and he would stick it or stuff it or gird it up under his belt. It was the equivalent of rolling up his shirt sleeves or tying up his shoelaces or buckling up his chin strap. When he girded his his tunic, he was ratcheting up his intensity, upping his efforts. To gird up your loins meant getting serious about the task at hand. You see, too many people today are playing at their faith. They're just dabbling in Christianity. It's been said the modern world works at its play, worships its work, and plays at its worship. We piddle half-heartedly with things that are of eternal importance. Peter tells his readers, it's time to get serious about living for Jesus. They need to beef up their determination. They need to kick their faith in high gear. Now before I go further, I need to offer a clarification. Peter here isn't saying that the Christian life is a product of our good works, or our elbow grease, or our willpower. Spiritual change and lasting peace and a new nature entail a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's God's work, not ours, that ultimately makes the difference. Christian growth comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's the Holy Spirit working in us and then through us. It's transformation, not just reformation. A changed life results from the seed of God's Word growing in a heart that's fertile with faith and repentance. But our determination does play a part. There's a quote I want to teach you this morning. It's a short saying, but it's long on truth. I want you to listen carefully, and then we're going to repeat it together in unison. You cannot change your heart, but you can change your mind. God can change your heart, but He won't change your mind. But if you choose to change your mind, then God will change your heart. Now, would you say that with me? Let's say it together. You cannot change your heart, but you can change your mind. God can change your heart, but He won't change your mind. But if you choose to change your mind, then God will change your heart. Now what does this mean? This is a profound truth. God's work waits on your cooperation. Your agreement with God is the key that allows Him to work changes in your heart and in your life. You see, God is a perfect gentleman. He never barges in where he's not welcome or he's not invited. God isn't going to change your mind if your mind is already made up to resist him. You know, we all start out life hostile toward God. We're born with this proclivity to sin. We're selfish and greedy from the wound. Jesus pointed this out in the sweeping statement he made when he said, He who is not with me 
is against me. In other words, at some point in everybody's life, they have to change their mind toward God. And if they don't, God will not work in their life. When you show God that you're willing and you're determined to obey Him, then He comes in and He changes your stubborn and lustful and wayward heart. Have you girded up your mind? Have you changed your mind toward God and gotten serious about following Jesus? Well, in this morning's text, Peter tells us how to get serious about following the Lord. He gives us six new ways to think, six mind changes to make. Now, I'm going to list them for you, and then we're going to go back through and talk about them. First, you need to live with the end in view. Second, you need to live your life with holiness as your goal. Third, you need to live with your Father in mind. Fourth, you need to live with the blood of Jesus in the balance. Fifth, you need to live with God's purpose in sight. And then sixth, you need to live with your hope in a risen Savior. Now notice in verse 13, Peter says, Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In short, as a Christian, I need to live my life with the end in view. I think it was Martin Luther who once said, I live in light of two days, today and that day. He was speaking of the day that Jesus will return for his church. You know, one day we're going to see Jesus. And trust me, that day is the most important appointment on your busy calendar. And you would be very wise to prepare for that encounter right now. You'll want to one day hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Too many people are going to hear, I never knew you. Depart from me. Thomas Edison was an honest man who never spoke a word he didn't really believe. And on the night before he died, his wife was by his bed. Suddenly, Thomas jerked up as if he had something to say. She leaned over her dying husband, and his wife heard him whisper, It's beautiful over there. And it's true. Heaven is heavenly. The beauty of heaven is what we need to remember when life gets ugly. No matter how rough life gets for a Christian, we can always look forward to something infinitely better. As Peter said back in verse 6, in light of eternity, even a long life is but for a little while. The key to any race is to focus on the finish line. It's the beauties and it's the pleasures of coming attractions that make an unbearable world bearable. You know, often it's said of Christians, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. You ever heard that, that criticism? Well, I suppose that might be possible. You could go off and sit on a mountaintop, stare off into space, and just wait on Jesus to come back. But that's really an inadequate understanding of what eternity holds. Heaven is so important that it doesn't begin when you arrive. Preparation for heaven starts today. Understand how you live and what you do in this life will shape how you're going to spend eternity. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if you, read, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those 
who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. You see, a believer will get serious about following Jesus when he lives his life with heaven in mind. In 1 John 3, verse 3, the apostle is thinking of Jesus' return when he writes these words. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's a nice way of saying you don't want Jesus to catch you with your pants down. Jesus is returning. And do you want him to return the same night you drank too much? Or while you're flirting with your secretary? Do you want him to come back as you log on to a porn site? When Jesus comes back to snatch us up, we want to be found ready and eager and pure. You know, as I said last week, the Christian life is seldom easy, but it's always worth it. And a primary consolation is what lies ahead. God offers us delayed gratification. You see, faithfulness today yields blessings in the future. And yet this flies in the face of what makes the world go round. Folks today not only want it all, they want it now. Instant everything is the name of the game. Fast food and online shopping and internet bill pay and instant messaging. I mean, today, it, you walk a letter to the mailbox, you raise the flag, it gets delivered the next day, and we call it snail mail. As if it got there by the Pony Express. If we have to wait at all, it's too late. And yet, if you carry this attitude to an extreme, it will cause great frustration and disappointment in your relationship with God you'll find an eternal God isn't that interested in instant gratification. You see, most of God's blessings are time capsules that release their contents long after they're swallowed. As the Bible puts it, you seldom reap in the same season that you sow. Nature and creation work off the principle of delayed gratification. You see, there's always an in-between time. And in the meantime, there's a gap of time between the giving of God's promise and its reception. This means one of the prerequisites of the Christian life is that we've got to develop some patience. God says, endure through the night and joy will come in the morning. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And when I read that, I imagine the hardships of Job. You remember Job? He lost it all. Family, fortune, friendships, fitness, all went out the window overnight. And yet God called it a light affliction? Job's plight sounds pretty heavy to me. And yet God calls it light because he's comparing it to the eternal weight of glory that will be enjoyed eventually by every believer. You see, Paul would tell us that our first full second in heaven is going to be so exhilarating and so breathtaking that it'll more than make up for ten lifetimes of suffering. That's just the first full second. When you're weary or tempted 
or doubtful or discouraged, when you feel like giving up or giving in or giving out, remember, it's beautiful over there. Remember that, my friend. Peter writes in verse 13, rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace is love we don't deserve, and heaven is a chief example of God's grace. Keep your sights on the grace you'll receive when Jesus returns. Once there was a pastor, he was teaching on heaven, and the eternal pleasures and joys we'll experience there. He paused for a moment, and then he asked the congregation, how many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Well, every hand in the room went up except one little boy. One little boy sitting back in the back, kept his hand down. The pastor turned to him and pointed and said, son, don't you want to go to heaven? That's when the little guy said, yes, sir. I just thought you were taking up a load right now. And none of us know which load we're on, do we? You might be a young buck, but heaven could be a lot closer than you think. Whether you're young or old, live your life with the end in view. But also, live with holiness as your goal. Verse 14 encourages us to live as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Pursue holiness. You see, there's nothing on earth. There's no landscape, no seascape, no wonder of nature, no mountain or river or sunset as beautiful as a holy life. The only thing that rivals the beauties of heaven are the beauties of holiness. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 21, the people of God are appointed to sing to the Lord and praise the beauty of holiness. In contrast, though, it's both tragic and sad that in our world today, holiness has become a dirty word. You see, the concept of holiness confuses lots of people. Certain Christian sects have associated holiness with strict lists of do's and don'ts. Holiness is seen as obedience to a rigid system of legalism. Holy people dress a certain way and talk a certain way and act a certain way. But holiness is simpler. And it's far more profound than just a list or a look. It's an attitude that pervades all my life. The word holiness means to set apart. A holy life is a life reserved for God. Holiness is about loving God to the point that pleasing Him is my chief concern. Think of a freshman girl in high school. Oh, she's got a crush on an older boy. She walks into the assembly. She's hoping, she's wishing that he'll sit beside her during the pep rally. Several of her friends walk up to sit next to her, but she shoes them all away. She, she wants to keep this seat next to her open at all costs. It's reserved for someone special. And you see, this is the attitude of holiness. Holiness saves a seat in my life for God. It saves a seat in my mind for God. And a seat in my heart for God. And a seat in my sexuality for God. 
and a seat in my social life for God, and a seat in my business life for God, and a seat in all my activities for God, and a seat in my leisure time for God. Holiness saves a seat at the table in every area of my life for God. Peter tells us in verse 14, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Now, I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse. He writes this, Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, you do now. When Jesus has a seat at the table, you watch what you're doing. Your life is not just about you. Just because it might feel good doesn't make it right. You know better now. You see, serious Christians, they're always thinking in terms of holiness. They're always reserving Jesus a seat at the table. Verse 17 teaches us another way that serious Christians think. He says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here, in fear. You get serious about faith when you live with the Father in mind. Now you and your earthly dead, you may be friends. Hopefully you are. But a father isn't just a friend. Over the course of a child's life, that child will have lots of friends. But a father is more. He holds you accountable. He points you in the right direction. He holds a sway over your life. He requires you to stick to your guns and do what you say. He can reward you or he can punish you. He does both. He wields authority. And our God is a father. He is our father. Now again, I love Peterson's paraphrase of verse 17. He says this, You call out to God for help and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father who won't let you get by with sloppy living. Serious Christians Christians remember who's their daddy. They have a father in heaven. And they don't just run to him when they have a need. He holds them accountable with how they live. Serious Christians, keep in mind that God is a father who deserves to be loved appreciated and respected and even feared. Hey, no sloppy living among God's kids. We need to live every day of our lives with our Father in mind. Several years ago, Franklin Graham held an evangelistic crusade in Australia. One night, a 15-year-old boy responded to the invitation. Later, a counselor reported the conversation that he had had with the boy When the counselor asked him why he had come forward and responded to the message, this is what he said. Because I haven't been decent with Jesus. I like that. That's honest. Because I haven't been decent to Jesus. You see, our relationship with God is a personal relationship. And in personal relationships, people take things personally. We have a Father in heaven who loves us. But love can be offended. God takes sin personally. 
You can trifle with God. The fact that God is love means He has feelings. And we can hurt His feelings. We can upset His feelings. God gets mad and sad as well as glad. And this is why throughout your stay on earth, we need to live our lives with our Father in mind. Both life below and life above is a gift from Him. And we should want to please Him in all that we do. Lou Little once coached football at Georgetown University. One year, a boy tried out for his team who caught Lou's attention. He was a big kid. He worked hard. He hustled in practice. But he was more like a teddy bear than a defensive tackle. And in the four years on the team, the only game action he ever saw for Georgetown was when the team was 40 points up or 40 points down. Lou kept him on the team because he was a good teammate. And he was a morale booster. Well, Coach Lou also noticed the tight relationship that this boy had with his father. Whenever his dad would visit the campus, he, he saw the boy, he would hold his dad by the arm, and he would escort him all around the campus. Well, tragically, one day, news came of this father's death. And it fell to Coach Lou to go and to console the player, break the news. Coach Lou told him, if there's anything we can ever do for you, son, the boy, of course, asked for the coach's prayers. But then the young man dropped the bombshell. He did have one other request. He asked, can I start my last game, coach? Well, Lou didn't know how to reply. The last game was for the championship. This kid wasn't even good enough to play, let alone start. And yet, Coach Lou was a man of his word. He agreed. He figured the boy would play one down and be done. But to everyone's amazement that day, the kid was awesome. He tackled a man in the backfield. He sacked the quarterback. He never exited the game. Afterwards, Coach Lou, he approached this kid and he asked him what had gotten into him. What had motivated such an extraordinary performance? And that's when the young man, still grieving over the loss of his dad, told Coach Lou the rest of the story. He said, Coach, my father was blind his whole life. And today, now that he's in heaven, it's the first time he ever saw me play. Our Father in heaven is watching us as well. And he's just as excited as the dead in the story to watch his children play. People who are serious about living out their faith and following Jesus, keep the Father in mind. Verse 18 gives us a fourth way to get serious about following Jesus. Peter says, live your life knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's telling us to understand the cross and to always live with the blood of Jesus in the balance. Peter reminds us that we weren't redeemed with corruptible, tarnishable materials like gold and silver. You see, if my soul had been bought by dollars or pounds or pesos or euros or yen, I would not feel the obligation that I do. In fact, I'd probably try, try to pay off my debt as soon as I could. But my soul was purchased by a price that I can never repay. God's designs on my life are so high and so holy that He allowed His only Son to go through a painful torture and execution. 
like the lambs slaughtered by the priests. Jesus was condemned to grant my pardon. He was nailed to set me free. This week is Passion Week. We're having a great Thursday and a good Friday service. We're going to focus on the cross this week. And as we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, as we consider how and why He died, here's what it should happen. Here's what I hope happens. I hope it pulls us into a gravity of obligation that we can't easily skirt. His blood spilt means that you are loved and that you're valued. It means that we have a God-given purpose, a divine destiny. It means that for reasons that we will never fully grasp, God has a claim on our lives. He has ambitions for us. We were bought with a price, and we are no longer our own. In his book, The Reason for God, author Tim Keller, he writes of a woman that he spoke to once who was new to this whole concept of grace. All her life, she had tried to earn God's favor. But now she saw the beauty of grace, of freely receiving favor that she could never earn. But she also saw its other edge. And she told Pastor Tim that she was scared of grace. He thought, what? Why would you be scared of grace? And this new believer answered him. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty. And now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing God can't ask of me. She was right on. Now, now don't misunderstand. Jesus didn't do all that he did for us in order to force us to do the same for him. Grace isn't a game of tit for tat. In fact, my devotion for Jesus will never, never rival his devotion for me. But can I receive grace and not be grateful? Of course not. A deep sense of obligation is inevitable. This is why the New Testament calls us love slaves of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus captures my heart and it draws me into a relationship where no price is too great to show my love for Him. The blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, ties me to a shooting star that lifts me above the temptations of this world and places me into a godly orbit. I'm drawn forever to the wounds of the Savior who died for me. You see, when I live in light of the cross, I realize I can never retreat to my former fleshly, immoral, prideful life. I can never go back. When I live with His blood in the balance, I will live differently. In light of the cross, how can we not get serious about Jesus? Well, if you want to get serious about following our Lord, live with the end in view and with holiness as your goal and with the Father in mind and with the blood in the balance and with God's purposes in sight. Be a person of purpose. Know that your life has meaning and direction. You have a trajectory 
that, that ends up in heaven. Imagine. You see, evolution says that you're just a chance arrangement of random molecules. That your life is of no more value than the algae growing out in the retention pond behind the church. But that's not what Peter says about you. Verse 20, Jesus indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Notice this, before the foundation of the world, God knew you. Before the planets were assigned orbits, God knew your eye color and the swagger in your walk and what would tickle your funny bone. He knew all these things about you. And he knew that you'd rebel against him, that you'd punk out, and you'd give in, and you'd dope up, and you'd go off. He knew that you'd cave into temptation and you'd flesh out. God knew that you would deny him and go your own way. Friend, he knew. Before the foundations of the world, he knew. And yet he chose to love you. And he sent Jesus for you. Before time began, God ordained Jesus to die in your place. This means that our salvation, our position in Christ is no accident. That God's interest in us is not some freakish thing. It's not some impulsive or some Johnny-come-lately attitude in God's heart. God made preparations for you to be saved long before He hung the sun and stars in the heavens and brought the moon out at night. Now, how can you forget about God before tomorrow morning's coffee break? How? Serious Christians understand that their life has a God-sanctioned purpose and they muster all of their energy to live with God's purposes in sight. And then finally, verse 21, who through Jesus we believe in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, you get serious about following Jesus when you live with your hope in a risen Savior. The resurrection is all about hope. As we learned last Sunday night, the resurrection is not an end of anything. It was the beginning of everything. The resurrection will require more faith, not less faith, from His disciples. I love a scene from the miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, that came out in the late 70s. Maybe you've seen it. But in this final scene, the political Jew who, who conspired with Judas, who did all the dirty work, he enters the empty tomb to discover that the man that he's helped to crucify has risen from the dead. He, he picks up the shroud, and he looks off into the distance, and then he whispers to himself, Now it begins... Now, it all begins. Wow, and it did. The empty tomb proved conclusively that Jesus is alive and well. Even today, he's out there, man. He's on the loose. He's doing what pleases him. The fact Jesus rose from the dead and lives today infuses hope in all of life's challenges. If Jesus desires, he can hold back the tide. Or he can come to your rescue. Or he can even change the unchangeable circumstances in my life. 
Nothing is impossible for a risen Savior. Hitch your wagon to the risen Lord Jesus and he'll take you places, friend. Your life will become an adventure. You'll see and do and hear and learn of things that godly men of old only dreamed of knowing. Get serious about following Jesus and you'll live with hope in a risen Savior. Well, as I said earlier, you know, there's a difference between frequenting the gym and working out. Just like going to church is not necessarily living for Jesus. If you want to be a serious Christian, then live with the end in view and with holiness as your goal and with the Father in mind and with the blood in the balance and with God's purposes in sight and with hope in the risen Savior. You know, it's time for some of us to get serious. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for working in our hearts today as we've listened to your word. Now, Lord, help us to take the things we've learned and put them into practice in our lives. We love you so much. We ask that you work in us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.